Hello, thank you very much for listening to this new RD audio recording. We had a really fantastic response to the first one on procrastination, and we've commissioned a whole series which will be coming out in the weeks and months to come. Uh, for now, though, I'm delighted to share with you the second recording that I made with Katie Darcy. If you have listened to the previous one on procrastination, you'll know that Katie is a really experienced researcher development professional who has over 10 years' experience working with PhD students and postdocs. And in today's recording, she and I discussed some of the challenges of communicating remotely. This is something that we know from conversations and communications that we've had with PhDs and postdocs at the moment can be particularly challenging. How do you maintain good working relationships and clear communication when we're all adapting to new platforms, new modes of communication, but also still using some of the old ones like email? So this recording follows the same format as the previous one. Uh, along the way, we share some uh, anecdotes and some experiences and also reference some tools or tactics that we hope will be useful to you. So I hope very much that you find it helpful and look out for further recordings in due course. So as a place to start, Steve, what do you think are some of the main pitfalls um, in communication when we're working from home? I definitely think one of the main pitfalls at the moment actually is the proliferation of different platforms that there are. I think for most of us, it was comparatively new. Uh, many of us were familiar with using things like Skype or, or Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp in our um, private lives and maybe had less familiarity using those in the workplace. Um, although obviously clearly I know a lot of researchers have used video conferencing through their international collaborations but we're in a situation now where it's the mainstay of what we do and I think people have been learning Zoom and Teams and Webex and uh, you know 101 other uh, communication platforms in the meantime and they all have pluses and minuses and they all have different uh, sort of benefits um, and, and, and pitfalls. Mm. And um, therefore, could you do you have any idea of which ones work better in certain circumstances or is there sort of a stock advice as to which one to use? I think not really, to be honest. I mean, some of them are technologically easier. I mean, there have been comments that, for example, Zoom works a bit better on, for people who are slower broadband because it doesn't seem to use quite the same bandwidth as say teams i mean i'm not an it expert i can't verify that I'm, that's just what i've heard um to me i think it's a lot more about preference i think um so one example that does occur to me is i think if for example you've been using whatsapp and skype extensively for non-professional communication in the run-up to the lockdown i've noticed quite a few people are reluctant to also start using it now for their professional communications it seems to, in some way to I think blur the boundary in a way when already working from home has done that to a quite significant degree and I've noticed some people feel quite strongly they want to retain some of those platforms for what was their personal communication before and they want it to stay that way and um, others are, are, are less bothered and that's perfectly fine too um, I also think that um, some people are much more uncomfortable or perhaps uh, less well set up for video conferencing and I'm noticing a lot more comments about wanting to try where possible to reduce the number of hours spent doing video conferencing and to think about using chat and also reverting to email as a kind of you know tried and tested medium. Yeah I think this um, brings up the whole issue with it there's we've got lots of variables going on here haven't we because we haven't just got the individual personality of whether or not you know you prefer a certain 
um, platform, like you said, whether you prefer Facebook Messenger versus WhatsApp or whether you prefer Skype versus Zoom. But also we have um, other factors that are coming in. So because we're in very unusual times of everyone pretty much working from home, we also have that people may not want to engage with a certain platform because of what that actually means within their home setting. So something like Zoom or Skype, where you actually see the person, um, might actually seem quite invasive when they're in their home environment, their kids are around, their pets are around. There's all those other factors and distractions and things that, that sort of add um, other factors to the communication that people may feel a bit shy about. Absolutely, and I think that one of the things I've noticed just on a really small scale, but it's been a cause of anxiety for some of the people I've been working with, is where on earth do you set the laptop up so that you've actually got enough lighting on your face? So um, obviously some, you know, some lighting, we don't want to look like we're reading ghost stories by the campfire um, with strange kind of gothic underlighting or overlighting, creating all these shadows. And um, some desks have got the window behind, so you're just in silhouette. And there's the whole, you know, do you loom over the laptop so you look like um, there's a very tiny person filming up at you? Or, you know, the, the physicality of that um, can be quite challenging, actually. And it's almost like the kind of, um, you know, what's talked about the the obsessive kind of retaking of selfies, you know, and I'm going, here we go, attempt number 1000 to get the angle of my smile just right. Actually, mm. I think if you're a bit unconfident with how you're appearing visually in the video conferencing, that in itself can be terribly distracting. And we've all seen in um, calls with people where you, you can see their eyes going to wherever their thumbnail is, and they are paying, if not as much, certainly um, a significant amount of attention to what they're seeing of themselves as they are to seeing everybody. And I, personally, I really like it when you have the option to switch the, the self view off or at least stick a post-it note over yourself so you can concentrate on looking at others. I think that's a, I think that's a really important point to appreciate um, with these things is that for some people seeing themselves on a screen is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and actually, even like for you and me, where public speaking is is a very big part of our day to day jobs and lives, even us, you know, the minute we start actually recording something or we're live or we're talking to each other professionally, everything changes. You know, um, we start to worry about the words we're using, how we look, whether or not you're judging me for the fact that I've stockpiled, you know, shower gel in the background or the fact that my lounge looks like a child's play center. You know, it's it's all of those factors that normally um, we're, we're able to manage in a professional setting that in a home setting feels um very revealing actually yeah and i think as you say it's um for some people that's that's an enormous hurdle to get over that's where it is also beneficial that some platforms i, mean, I think many of them now um, allow you to blur the background or to have an, an, an artificial backdrop I, I i did have a meeting the other day with someone who appeared to be dialing in from outer space You just never know. I mean, people get everywhere, don't they? It's true. They could, they could have been <laughs> on an asteroid somewhere. That would, that would be quite some internet connection they had there. Well, it's quite, it's quite some isolation. I think it's a brilliant response. <laughs> well, let's make a note of that as a, a strategy for if this goes on. Um, I was just thinking for the purposes of today's conversation, um, I know I want to talk a bit more about video conferencing, but actually... Um, in the conversations I've been having with researchers in recent weeks, there's still a, a sense that the 
as it were, the traditional or the pre-COVID kind of challenge of written communication, especially email, but also I think chat, that is still there, you know, it's, and you and I know from, from our years of working on communication with researchers that uh, people can genuinely be baffled by why email is so challenging and why they frequently feel misunderstood or they think communication hasn't gone very well. And it does seem to me that there's something amazingly unintentionally passive aggressive about email, that there can be such a colossal misalignment between the intention and the mood of the person writing the email and the uh, feelings and the understanding um, at the other end with the reader. So, you know, for example, when I think about doing my emails, often, to be honest, it's a stressy kind of thing. You know, I, I'm looking and I'm thinking there are so many emails in that inbox. I don't know how I'm going to get through all of them. I need to find a way to triage them. You know, there might be someone screaming in the background and the, the dinner needs cooking and this the washing up's not done. And I, and I haven't felt as productive as I wanted to with other things. And I think all of that stress gets brought to the way that we read our emails and certainly in in the old days as it were in inverted commas I used to read my emails on the on the train or on the bus and again I think there's there's something about that which you bring to the reading of it something which feels a bit hassled and I've always thought that the one of the big challenges with written communication is that it's so hard to plan for the unknown mood that the person is going to be in when they receive the communication yeah I I think that's a huge thing um, that it's um, it's not received in a way in real time. It's not received at the point you wish to give that information. It's received at a point after that. And it can be any length of time after that. And I think not only do you have to consider, therefore, when you're composing the email, that is it is it clear enough? Um, is it is it written explicitly enough for someone to receive it in the way in which you intended? Um, at any time but just to say also that as a reader of emails you also have to manage yourself in that um, and um, the comedian James Acaster um, used to go on about that when he used to get into bed if his partner wanted a massage he used to think oh no I, I had no more jobs and now I've got a job to do I have no more jobs and I think emails do that to us we we might read them as we're making dinner and we're thinking dinner's probably like one of the last jobs of the day. And then if we read our emails on top of that, we feel like actually the jobs have got added to because that email is usually our request for something, either work or a response um, or thoughts about something. And so as the reader, you also have to manage, then don't open emails sort of at random times, pick times when you feel in a place that you can respond accordingly because otherwise you yourself actually are, are the source of the problem by reading them at a time which is not appropriate. Absolutely. I think one of the key things that I learned years ago from uh, working with someone on time management who was delivering some sessions to researchers was to really think about the rhythm of the day and to think about where, when are your really good times in the day when you, you can Gen, well, notwithstanding potential interruptions and things from working from home at the moment but generally speaking you might be able to expect to work well so for me it tends to be in the morning when I know that I can concentrate and do the work that requires more brain power well really that's not a good time of day to be doing emails so where possible I mean obviously there are times when work is urgent and people are I know to expect things to come in but as much as I can if I've got something that's going to really require some intensive thinking I'll work offline 
um, in the morning while I do that piece of work. And then I know that they will, I will make time in the afternoon to engage with my emails. I wouldn't leave them, you know, probably really more than about 12 or 14 hours. But like, let's say I wouldn't leave them more than 24 hours kind of unread and unattended to. But trying to make sure that the emails aren't encroaching on that really valuable time for those high return activities. It takes a real discipline. There's something really surprising to me about the a certain kind of anxiety, actually, not that, maybe that sounds slightly overblown, but a, a nervousness, perhaps, that if we're not constantly keeping an eye on our emails, someone's going to be cross with us or work is building up. But actually, in the shape of a day, there is time to, to find out these things and to catch up. I do know that some researchers um, uh, do feel under intense pressure to reply to emails in the evenings and at weekends. And I think the university is pushing hard uh, under things like the new Concordat and the work on research culture and dignity at work to really be saying that's not appropriate, that's not how we want to be living. And I think actually in principle, it's fine to say I'm not available to respond to emails um, for these hours here and these hours here, whatever that might be. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's such an important point to make. I think the other thing to think about is that you're actually not serving anybody if you're depleting yourself by constantly being that anxious state. And I think we do falsely believe that if we're always watching our emails, then we're always in control because we know what's coming in and we know when it's coming in. But actually, that's a false economy because that leads to burnout and that leads to being in a constantly, like you say, anxious state and that you're firefighting all the time and nothing is ever responded to um, with sort of uh, thought and time taken over it. You know, it's, well, that's come in, so let's quickly respond to that because then it's done and I can get it off my plate and I've got closure over it. But actually, there's lots of things that need a little bit of time and thought about. Um, and again, sometimes we can save ourselves some really awkward work moments if we actually took some time over our response rather than quickly batting something off so that it's done and dusted. I couldn't agree more. I definitely can think of some examples of emails where I basically I was responding at 10 o'clock at night when I was tired, probably ought to have gone to bed, was telling myself it was important to do it then so it was done, maybe that I'd sleep better or feel, and then actually the next day ended up having to take, uh, shall we say, kind of corrective steps to either resend the email saying what I wish it had said or get in touch with the person and sort of try to address any misunderstandings. I, I think as much as we can, we want to be trying to exercise you're right that kind that kind of self-care kind of self-preservation so you know we can't give constant attention to something like email you can also respond quickly but by yourself time so for example you can send an email that says i can see that this is an important thing to consider so um, i'm going to have a think about it this evening and i'll send my response tomorrow and what that effectively says is it's a read receipt i've seen it i'm thinking about it and i'll give a considered response tomorrow much better that than sending a quick email that's a bit messy and then the following day you have to backtrack over something that once you've slept on it or had some thought over it you're like actually I'm not sure that was the best response. Yeah there's something to be said as well for um, saving a draft and sleeping on it which yeah I think I was going to um, say it's just, it, we, we know that people have different preferences some people have got a hundred drafts on the go at any one time and some people some people have none on the go so it, my, my, I tend to, if I've written it, just hit send. And actually, I've really had to learn some emails you need to sit with for overnight or for a few hours before you're really sure you want to hit that send button. I, I think on that note, to be honest, because I'm so clumsy and I'm so bad at hitting send out of absolute like automatic response on an email or a text message or anything, 
I just hit send without thinking about it that I actually, even if I consider this thing a draft, I forget that it's a draft right at the end. It's almost like the send is for me the close button. So my advice also would be that if you have thought this is going to be all of my thoughts down on, I just need to get my thoughts down and blow off the steam and then I'll edit it and redraft it, I would actually compose that in a different platform. So um, write it in Word, not in the email reply um, so that the draft is in Word and you've actually got to copy and paste it into the email because I think people unwittingly press send when they actually wanted to save draft. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing I do, if uh, I, I compose things in Word and then cut and paste, them, or sometimes I remove all of the addresses from the two CC and BC mm, yes. C lines. So if I accidentally hit send, it wouldn't go anywhere. And, and the thing would say, but you, but you don't have anyone to send this to so that I can't. You're right. I mean, sometimes it's that, it is that, you know, you, you, sign your name at the end of the email and like a reflex your thumb goes to the send button or your absolutely. mouse yeah absolutely no, i completely agree hit return and it's gone and you're like no <laughs> how do i claw that back <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm glad this is obviously our, the errors of our ways playing out and now we're just paranoid <laughs> well it's good that we have this opportunity to have this <laughs> therapy session together about about our uh, tendency to hit send <laughs> um, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me thinking about email communication, and I learned this from uh, a leadership coach who did a lot of work in Cambridge a few years ago, is around uh, recognizing the, the potential to be misunderstood because of the, you know, we can't legislate for what mood or circumstance the email is being read in at the other end. And one can manage that by saying, this is my intent. Um, so I was thinking about how again, like how tone can come across very, very unclearly in email. So phrases like, please, can I kindly ask you to, could sound very polite, you know, please, please, could I kindly ask you to do this? Or it could sound very passive aggressive. You know, if you've been saying, um, you know, I, I was expecting this, 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 and this, um, and you haven't done them. So please, can I kindly ask you to do this immediately? Or um, the accidental slipping in of the word, but, you know, I, I appreciate that this might be frustrating for you, but blah, 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 blah. That doesn't sound very much like you genuinely appreciate that it might be frustrating. Um, or the other one is just let me know. Let me know can sound genuinely like I'm hoping you will tell me your view or it can sound a lot like um, I require an answer. Stop messing me around. You know, and that tone is so difficult to judge. And this leadership coach who I worked with, um, who, as I say, was also working in Cambridge, um, gave me the incredibly simple suggestion of a sentence that begins with the three words, my intent is. Mm. So you would say what it is you want to say, make your request if you're making one, and then add, take the extra two or three minutes to write that one further sentence that says, my intent in asking this is, or my rationale for suggesting this is, and just being willing to, to invest that extra energy in trying to clarify your intent you can't guarantee that the person at the other end will receive it, especially if you're asking them to do something you think that they're not going to want to do, but it does at least mean that they will hopefully understand where you're coming from. But I love those kind of prompts that really help you get to the heart of the matter, because I think they're so helpful for you as well as the composer and the writer. Um, you know, from numerous things that I train that I bang on all the time about Brene Brown, you know, when, when you're trying to explain to someone why something is bothering you, you know, and, and she uses this fantastic prompt of the story I'm telling myself is. And that's where you actually just lay on the table of here's all of the things I've got in my mind floating around that are bothering me or that, you know, in inverted commas, I've made up, but that are my truth. And you show that person them and then that allows them to deal directly with that issue. 
And I think your prompt there of my intention is, is exactly that. If you're composing an email at the end of it, you go back and say, okay, my intention is, and you can't clearly communicate that, then you also need to think a little bit further about it. And I think that's also those, um, those things are also really helpful with them thinking those kind of phrases or sentences help with um, writing things like the title of an email. Why should this person be reading it? What's actually the main message? What is it you instantly need them to know about this message so that they open it and deal with it? Or maybe they don't open it and deal with it. They know that it's for later, right? All of those prompts are really helpful at getting to the heart of the matter for you and again also for the um, reader at the other end. I, I love those. I think, they're, I think they're really useful. And I think what's very striking to me about them is, you know, my intent is, my rational, rationale is, the story I'm telling myself is, is actually it's all about us. We're taking kind of responsibility for it, not putting anything on the other person. Like those prompts work if they're saying, like, I'm trying to give you a window into where I'm coming from in order that we might yeah. better be able to understand one another. That's not the same thing as manipulating someone or trying to trick them into doing something for you. It's just saying, if I tell you where I'm coming from, then hopefully will be better able to negotiate you know then you tell me where you're coming from and we'll find a middle ground so and that's also the thing that we're talking about in terms of all of this remote working is that um you're you're stripped of that real-time back and forth conversation and so actually um you you need to be really descriptive and you need to illuminate that for someone in order for them to know where this is going from otherwise that's where you get emails and things that are really directive and you know it's just an order for someone and like i was saying before you know just another job for them to do and that angers them because it just feels like they're a dog's body rather than buying into the bigger picture and so that you know my intention is or the bigger rationale for this is etc really helps that person contextualize it and really helps them um have a sense of where this is coming from and then they have more of a buy-in and also more of an ownership over what the uh, what the agenda is absolutely and i think that that applies at, at all levels you know that doesn't have to just be the person who's you know in charge of the department or head of the group you know whenever we're asking someone for something or trying to engage with them we we can we can do this it's not all about kind of you know management it's about just sort of like it's collaboration and professional relationship building I think I just wanted to move on and think about uh, when communication isn't working. Um, Richard Mullinder, who um, ha has been training the Art of Negotiation on the Research Development Programme for years, a, a contact of yours, Katie, from uh, many, many years ago, um, he talks about how if communication isn't working, it's your responsibility to change it. In, in other words, mm. you know, if someone hasn't understood what you've said, you can't just sit there and um, moan to yourself about them being an idiot or, you know, uh, <laughs> or whatever you might be moaning to yourself about. Like, actually, you failed to get your message across. And I think one yeah. thing that is noticeable is sometimes written communication isn't getting anywhere. There is There does seem to be some talking across purposes. And actually, sometimes mm. the most professional and assertive thing to do is to suggest having a call, having a face-to-face -face conversation. And, and as you said, that, that moves it from an asynchronous medium into a real-time synchronous kind yeah. of engagement. That makes then a, a nice segue into the second uh, thing that I wanted to talk about today, which is about video calling. Um, mm. I think by now most of us have done enough of it from home that we've kind of sussed out the tech. Like I think I know that I need to use earphones and I plug my microphone in and mute myself when others are talking and all those kinds of things. What does seem really noticeable to me though is everybody is talking about how tiring video conferencing is. And I wondered if yeah. you found that. Yeah, I think it is really tiring. Um, and I think again, it's because of those things that are stripped away. 
So um, as much as we try to set up our cameras and things like that, um, you still pretty much are just a head and maybe some shoulders, but you don't get the whole body. And, um, you know, if you and me, Steve, were in the same place together, you know, one of us would be leaning forward at one point when we wanted to make a point or um, we might slightly move our hand and we'd be able to pick up on that. And this isn't sort of talking about kind of body language tricks, because you know that I don't believe in those, but really talking about um, that you would get cues, lots of different cues. The person would open their mouth and you'd sort of be able to see that in the peripheral vision. But you can't get that from video conferencing. So what you have to do is, is look directly at the person. Um, and focus on them all the time to be able to pick up on those cues. And that's so tiring. And not only that, but we've also then got all the stuff that's going on around us that I've got as context, but you might not have as context. So when we were talking about um, what we were going to discuss today before hitting the cord, you know, I had dogs that were barking in the background from my neighbour. And I feel that I have to say to you, oh, I'm really sorry, there's, there's some dogs howling in the background. You know, and I'm having to explain that to you because I'm worried that, that means you can't hear me or that's just really distracting or you're wondering why all of a sudden I'm flitting to the side trying to see what on earth's going on outside with some random dogs and all of that adds extra layers to us having to communicate that normally we don't have to deal with when we're in the same room as each other so it's um it's being things being stripped away like the person body movement um, and little non-verbal cues and things like that and then also all of these random distractions that I'm not sure you can see hear, or read that I'm having to narrate to you so that you understand what I'm going through here and you don't think that I'm just being impolite or I've lost interest or why am I looking over there all of a sudden yeah I think that's so true it's a really really intensive kind of listening when you don't have all those other supporting cues that we would normally uh, look for and, and as well I, I agree with you that um, there's some, for a lot of us anyway, I think there's a part of our brain that's also precisely sort of worrying about the environment and the other noise and like feeling like we have to keep sort of intervening um, to sort of say, oh, you know, I'm oh, sorry, there, there was a motorbike going past outside. That's the one that, that happens to me at 11 o'clock every morning. Someone with a Harley Davidson pulls past my window and I have an 11 o'clock call every morning. Um, luckily, he goes <laughs> straight on by. But um, I think that <laughs> it's also, it seems to me that there's something really important then about. Uh, how intensive that is, um, recognising that it's really tiring means we do have to be quite thoughtful, I think, about the number of video calls we have and, and the length of them. And I certainly feel that I don't have control over all of the meetings I'm in, clearly. Um, but where I can influence when they happen, I'm trying to be thoughtful about when they happen. I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is I read something on the um, uh, Harvard Business Review that was uh, talking about inclusion and diversity. And it was saying that uh, we need to recognize that team dynamics, you know, where we've got multiple people, particularly on a call, um, team dynamics won't go away just because we've moved into a video call. So they will almost certainly be carried across. And in fact, they're very likely to be amplified by moving mm. to a remote medium. So the obvious one would be the very talkative people who naturally chip in in every meeting and you know perhaps like the sound of their own voice quite frankly um they are going to be potentially even more dominating on video conference and in particular those who find it hard to speak up have to fight not only to be heard over the sort of, as, as it were the kind of personalities and the dynamics but they have to fight over the technology which is often searching for one microphone that it can focus in on and it can't support too much competing kind of audio so i think there's something really interesting for me then about the shared responsibility that we all have to try to be inclusive and to try to think about 
dynamics that might be happening in a video call. So I think um, not only do you have to think about that if you're the chair of the meeting, of if you know that you have a member of your team who doesn't often speak up in meetings um, or who prefers to reflect on things, that is an obvious role for somebody who's the chair. But also if you're somebody that you have um, the self-awareness to know that you, you don't often speak up in meetings and you do prefer that time to reflect or you're better in writing, um, than in verbal communication is to think about well then how am I going to participate so if you've had a zoom meeting and um, you haven't actually offered anything thinking about maybe then it's it's um, appropriate that I send a follow-up email and I say on reflection of that meeting um, these are some of the thoughts that I've had and I think that's a really nice way of seeing participation that's ultimately what all of these things we're doing email um, video conferencing, it's all about participation and trying to keep a team on the same page. And so how are you going to do that? And again, it doesn't even have to be by email. It could be if you have something like a WhatsApp group um, as part of your um, lab or research project or whatever it is, you know, then maybe offering something there, but at least your voice is heard. Some way in how, however we're working is our voice needs to be heard. Our contribution needs to be there in some form because that's, why effectively we're in the team um, but it doesn't need to be a verbal voice it can be a written voice um, or it can be a text voice and of course one of the ways that some platforms support that is by is with the chat function that's built into them so zoom and teams are two examples that i'm more familiar with where actually in group meetings um, we make a point of always having that up everyone's asked to have have the chat so they can see it and sometimes an intervention you know it doesn't uh, one might sort of raise one's hand and then the chair uh, calls a person to speak and then and actually what they've got to say is really small and actually then maybe that is appropriate to as it were kind of drop that into the chat and there is advice also for I think the disability resource center have been saying that having the chat function um, running in parallel with the conversation can be more inclusive i think it does mean then again there's that sort of heightened responsibility we all have to be attentive i think uh, sometimes the chair um is doing so much else that they don't notice the chat so sometimes it's our job if we are comfortable to speak up to alert people to what it says in the chat in case it's been missed the other one that i've noticed a few times is particularly when you've got i don't know i mean i was in a meeting i had 16 heads on a kind of gallery last week mm. and i i think it's impossible for the person chairing to be reading across all of those faces but a couple of times and i did notice someone wanting to speak and I, I could just see them leaning in and kind of taking a breath and for various reasons not in any way malicious they weren't noticed they didn't get called on and again there was an opportunity for me to speak at one point when i was able to say actually i think so and so um, had a point related to this as well and i wonder if we could bring them in and so to me there feels to be something there's something quite important i think about that shared responsibility we have yeah and i think um as well as seeing that somebody wants to make a point and can't um i also what i've been witnessing as well is people making points and they're being and then being misunderstood again because it's quite a clunky form of communication when we're all on video conferencing so someone's sort of taken somebody's point and gone off on a completely different tangent and then someone else has to step in and say actually i understood that comment completely differently and i thought they meant x rather than z and I think um, that's another thing that we, we're responsible for is actually um, recognising that and not allowing something to sort of run away with itself. Um, so witnessing where somebody's point has been misconstrued and actually helping that person then make that point. And none of that has to be done 
in a way that's um, embarrassing or that shows anybody up. It's actually you saying, oh, I, I, I actually thought you were making the point about that thing. And then that person can accept or deny that. And every, it's just an open conversation. And all of that's actually very respectful and normal as part of our conversation. But to not just let it go, you know, to not think, I'm not sure that's the point they wanted to make. That's, not, that's doing a disservice to the communication is to not illuminate those points. And I would certainly say as someone who uh, leads a, um, a small team and, and chairs quite a number of meetings, I, I welcome that sort of, that help in, in running the meeting. I mean, I, 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 there's no value, I think, in trying to be sort of hierarchical and saying, if I didn't notice it, then, then you yeah. know, and I didn't call on the person that, that we won't be taking that contribution. I and of course, I, I don't think we I don't really care consciously... what you meant, it's how I understood it that matters. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely but you know i i mean we, we joke about it and we mentioned richard mullander before and, and i think this is probably a good place to to draw this to a, a conclusion but i think you and i have talked a very great deal over the years when we've been doing programs together and working with researchers but also in our kind of you know one-on-one -on -one professional conversations about the idea that communication is about taking responsibility for how you're understood um, mm. that actually that's hard it is really difficult you know if we've said something that we put time and effort into and the other person seems not to have understood it it's it, it does tend to be the case that we feel a sense of frustration you know uh, or even kind of being asked to repeat oneself some sometimes can be frustrating you know you might lose your flow or you um, and I think to me, it seems that now more than ever, when there's such an increase in the use of remote working and video conferencing, it's so important to recognize that responsibility, to be thoughtful about the way we, we try to manage how our emails are received, our chats, um, and to be trying to be inclusive, to try to make sure that we, we all take responsibility for making those, those video calls useful and making everybody feel part of them. Yeah, and I think, um a few of the things that we've touched on all the way through here is is about the different personalities that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and that exist within our teams and the preferences that those people have and then thinking um what's the most appropriate platform i can use so you've got people in their personalities the preferences they have and then the platforms and actually what you're really looking at is what's the right version for them what gets the message across the best for them exactly as you're saying is Richard Melinda's point about um, if communication isn't working it's your responsibility it's you that has to change that in order to provide a better context for your message absolutely and on that note I guess we should call things to a close today thanks so much for your time Katie it was great to talk to you again thank you so much for having me again Steve it's been a pleasure <laughs>